Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the globe. Welcome to another Forum Borealis episode in our Antediluvian series. Friends, tonight I'm delighted to present a brand new guest whom I've wanted on for some time and who offer a fresh angle to the topic of prehistory. Our conversation is based upon his latest book, which explores the riddle of how humans suddenly, quote-unquote, discovered civilization and what echoes in the records of the world's indigenous people regarding the Younger Dryas period and the mysterious culture that lived alongside our ancestors. Our guest is none other than world-renowned filmmaker, explorer and best-selling author Freddie Silva, who compared with the more spectacular names in the field, has managed to gradually grow somewhat under the radar to claim his place among the leading researchers of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites and their interaction with consciousness. Though he lives in Portland, Maine, he is born and bred in London, UK. Educated in photography, he began his career as a graphics and magazine designer who became an award-winning creative director for Copian Art in various leading advertising agencies in London, Chicago and Boston. Always being interested in geometry, he began researching crop circles in 1990 and very early on became a leading expert, providing some of the best contributions to the field from both a scientific and mystical perspective. As his fascination with the esoteric grew, his career in modern commerce plummeted until he eventually became a full-time researcher, author and speaker on the various geometry-related subjects he's delved into. At the more peculiar side, his 20 years of researching, visiting and experiencing sacred sites and ancient temples has taught him how to decipher these extraordinary places to discover how they work and how the spiritual technology of sacred space can be harnessed in our modern life. Hence, he is often hired as a consultant to anyone who, for various reasons, want to create a different kind of environment for themselves to establish a closer bond between themselves, their land and the invisible realms. More than anything, Silva is a hands-on researcher, faring all over the world, unearthing remote places, speaking with local sources, digging deep in both documents and nature, and learning from first-hand encounters. As a true globetrotter, holding three citizenships from UK, Portugal and US, not only has he travelled to virtually every disparate place on the globe, but by combining his skills in the subject and his voyage experience, he's also heading private tours to sacred sites in England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Portugal, Malta, Egypt, Peru, Bolivia, Mexico and Guatemala with sacred earth journeys. Here he shares his insights 
as a lifelong student of earth mysteries, sacred space and ancient systems of knowledge, like he also does as a popular international speaker. Indeed, for two decades, he's been a permanent and repeating feature in the international lecture circuit, with notable keynote presentations at over 20 different famous and major conventions, expos, symposiums and conferences. No wonder he's been interviewed at virtually every TV channel, radio show and podcast dealing with the subjects of his expertise. Not only has he appeared on and contributed to numerous TV series and documentaries, but he's also produced 10 of his own DVD documentaries on various topics covered by his work. Freddy also used his visual expertise as an arts photographer and his writing expertise as a regular contributor to journals such as Mystery Magazine, Atlantis Rising, New Dawn Magazine, Nexus, 1111, etc. As a critically acclaimed author, he has published six books in six languages. The Lost Art of Resurrection, Initiation, Secret Chambers and the Quest for the Otherworld, the Divine Blueprint, Temples, Power Places and the Global Plan to Shape the Human Soul. First Temple Nation, How Eleven Knights Created Europe's First Nation State and a Refuge for the Grail. Chartres Cathedral, The Missing or Heretic Guide. Secrets in the Fields, The Science and Mysticism of Crop Circles. And finally, The Missing Lands, Uncovering Earth's pre-flood civilization, which is the foundation of today's subject. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Freddy. Hello, Al. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent now that you're on board. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have this list of guests I have to have on for my series on antediluvian civilizations. You know, like uh, Robert Shock, uh, Graham Hancock, blah, blah, blah. But never, I've never heard of them. <laughs> never, no, I know, I know. They're minor compared to you. They're very good friends, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they are. That's great. Oh, do you know maybe Timothy Hogan, too? Um, I don't, actually, no. Okay. So you're not in that club. Um, I've had my eye on you for a while. I told you on an email that a friend of mine interviewed you uh, a few years ago when you were in Norway. But you know how I actually discovered you? Huh. <laughs> I bought a book from you. I don't mean one of the books you've written. I mean one of the books that used to uh, be in your shelf. <laughs> that you yeah, which one? Yeah. For some weird reason, you got rid of this. And, and it's a criminal act, actually, because it's a great <laughs> book. It's none other than Shwala Lubitsch. Ah, yes. Well, I had two copies, that's why. Oh, fully pardon granted, fully pardon granted, because it is a good <laughs> yeah, you'd book. you never get rid of that book. <laughs> so you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, absolutely, yes. It's a, it's a magical book, and uh, you know, it's hard to read, but it's uh, the reason oh, yeah. why so many of us are here, isn't it? Yep, exactly. But um, not all of us are here, because uh, the topic of today is missing lands, lost <laughs> lands. So I'm assuming if the lands are lost, maybe the original inhabitants are lost too. And that's a very intriguing title, and my audience will love this. So I suggest, Freddie, because I'm at a disadvantage here, I haven't read your book. So I, I suggest I'll, I'll you... I'll work on forgiveness. Pardon? I'm going to work on forgiveness. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, it's just a, a matter of time. I'm going to get it, obviously. Yeah, it's a big book, so, yeah. That's great, but it doesn't matter. The, the topic itself, in fact, sometimes that can be an advantage, actually. And especially if, if the host is a little familiar with the subject, uh, it can be good. So well, we'll Exactly. See. I just had go with the flow and amazing things happen. Yeah. Uh, and you have so many interesting books, but we can't tease my audience with them today. We'll focus on this one. And I suggest we start all the way back to the region. Um, okay, Al. In your research, uh, you have been convinced that there was, in fact, an ancient, advanced civilization. Sure. And that they were much older than what we're told. So could you fill us in on why you are, why you know this? It's a couple of reasons. One is observation. Uh, I've been around long enough to travel to many interesting places around the world uh, where there's a lot of megalithic um, cultures and also megalithic stonemasonry uh, of the likes of which uh, any stonemason that I've talked to cannot explain how primitive people were able to construct things of such a scale, of such beauty, elegance, and also mathematical precision. It seems as though there was a parallel civilization existing beside hunter-gatherers. And the other uh, point is that I really like to do my research based on the earliest possible available information because, you know, as the thousands of years go by, there's always a, a religious bias, there's a political bias that creeps into uh, new information. And I'd like to sort of get to the point where I want to hear what the original writers had to say. And when you get to that point, uh, you stand a better chance of reaching the truth. Uh, of course, none of us know what the exact truth is because only the people associated with any event know the absolute truth. But at least if you get rid of most of the political and religious bias uh, that we keep uh, getting in books these days, at least you stand a better chance of getting close to what the ancestors were saying. And um, the more I connect with either existing uh, indigenous people or people who uh, wrote down the information that their forebears had given them, mm. it's quite clear that they are adamant, absolutely adamant, that there was a parallel civilization existing alongside uh, us hunter-gatherers 12,000 years ago. And before that, um, the, the Sumerians, by the way, actually have a king list that go back 140,000 years. And they were very... Constant. Hang on, hang on. Is that is that longer back than the Egyptian king list? Well, it doesn't overlap. Uh, we have only one piece of information that lists the... Uh, as Sumerian king list, which of course incorporates the Mesopotamian king list, and theirs incorporates something else. Uh, the Egyptian king list survives for 36,000 years, uh, and um, but we don't know how much further back that goes. We have to bear in mind that a lot of things have been lost. Uh, it's only because of the Greeks who revitalized the Egyptian temple culture in the 3rd century BC that uh, we have anything surviving at all. Mm. But given the fact that the Sumerians, the Mesopotamians, and the Egyptians addressed the same people, the same gods by the same nickname, uh, I suggest that perhaps we're dealing with one and the same people. They're just living in slightly different locations. So given that alone, uh, let's take the Sumerian tradition of 140,000 years even regarding the fact that they may have been following a different calendar that we have right now, mm. uh, that's still a very, very long time. 
we now also have geological uh, record that clearly shows that uh, the Earth went through three major cataclysms between 14,000 and uh, 11,000 years ago, called the Dryas periods. And each one of those periods led to uh, the sinking of lands, the disappearing of vast amounts of dry land, and with them, the disappearance of the islands and the locations where these gods allegedly lived. So it's a, it's a very long story, and we may even be talking uh, in terms of millions of years if we speculate, because in Morocco, we have just discovered uh, new fossils of Homo sapiens that date back 300,000 years. And um, it was very exciting for about a week until it was discovered that in Bulgaria, that they've now found fossils dating back to 1.3 million years. So everything is getting older. You mean of Homo sapiens? Uh, a form of Homo sapiens, yes. Yeah, but Michael Cremo has documented this uh, even before, right? Exactly. And if you add Michael's work, uh, which lists such wonderful things as you know, uh, iron pots embedded in three million year old coal mm-hmm. uh, in Oklahoma, now you have a real problem. And uh, you know, and again, if you read the traditional stories from indigenous people, they had no problem in thinking in the round. Things are cyclical. Things go round in cycles. And they reoccur and they uh, dissipate, they are destroyed and they rebuild again. Uh, Only we in the West seem to think very linearly. Uh, We tend to think that things have a beginning and an end and that's it. But um, even in Japan in 8000 BC, they were still talking about the cycles within cycles and um, things just keep repeating. So God knows how long civilization has actually been on Earth. Mm. Now that is the million dollar question but well, exactly. I don't expect you to give a final answer on that oh I don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay. actually uh, NASA had uh, uh, preceded all of this they actually conducted a survey actually a study in 1976 they asked mm-hmm. the same question is it possible that there may have been a dinosaur civilization uh, but th- their point was it's very hard to prove despite the fact that there have been human footprints found Uh, next to dinosaur footprints in Texas. Um, Mm. They've been fossilized. They did say we can't expect to look back in time and and think that perhaps their civilization grew in the same way that ours has. They didn't, for example, have computers. What they did Mm. have was some other understanding of life, which is very different to ours, but it was nonetheless still very advanced to what we expect. And that they figured that the only way you could try and figure out if there were earlier civilizations on Earth uh, would be to look at the geologic record and find out that there were anomalies where you would find, for example, uh, large layers of soot in the uh, Greenland ice cores, which uh, would be the um, suggestion that perhaps the climate had been artificially altered uh, either through uh, natural catastrophe or by human hands, uh, which led to the demise of that civilization. And uh, they found it rather interesting that we're facing the same situation now, where just as we're discovering the evidence that a major meteorite strike on the Earth 11,000 years ago literally ended the Ice Age and a major civilization, that we are also now adding our own carbon footprint to which uh, any people a million years from now will be mm. doing exactly the same thing in Greenland and saying, hey, at one point a million years ago, there was a, a human civilization on Earth and they did some very silly things to their atmosphere. So that was their way of thinking. Uh, and that was 40 years ago. 
But but that's mind blowing. If there was a dinosaur based civilization, I, now I know where David Icke <laughs> got his ideas from, right? But I haven't read the book, but I've seen the chapters and samples, and it seems to me it's filled with great pictures. That's all because you you are the kind of guy who does you boots on the ground researcher, right? You know, not just sitting behind a desk. Oh God, uh, I have. This is what we're in June now. I've already been on twenty five airplanes this year, so. <laughs> my my and I'm a very tall guy. I'm a I'm a I'm a reformed Norwegian. I'm six foot five. In fact, I've been to Norway three times. I loved every visit. Mm. Loved the people, and it was so wonderful to speak to people without bending over. And I actually <laughs> hear people. I thought I thought I was deaf until I realised no. I just had to keep bending down to listen to people. <laughs> actually, I, I have to give props to the Hollanders. They're actually taller than us in average. But, really? Uh, yes, uh, for some weird reason. Well, I better get down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, no, I, I know my friend Cindy interviewed you when when you were here one of the times. But then I yes. think it was about um, uh, not ley lines, but crop circles. Uh, you're a well versed uh, man, but you've been focusing a lot on on um, ancient lately. By the way, before we go on with this discussion, what made you shift to ancient archaeology? Oh, I was always interested in this from a very early age. I was drawing pyramids when I was three years of age. Um, I, I really got sort of involved more with the crop circles originally because I knew exactly what they were the first time I saw them. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't explain it. It was a sort of a subconscious thing. Uh, and uh, I eventually gave up my career, my marriage, my everything I owned to reluctantly write a book which inadvertently becomes a bestseller worldwide. So if whoever the gods were who were backing me on this, I thank them. <laughs> but I did realize very quickly that the crop circles are not different from the way that a pyramid or a Stonehenge is constructed. Mm. It's the same principle. It's the same people that are behind the fundamental rules of creating ancient civilizations that are behind the crop circles. Uh, and I call them people because I have had direct experience of them and for me they are very much real and other people have had the same experience and uh, it was just going from one to the other in fact it became much easier to sell crop circles to to a public who's very skeptical by talking about ancient civilizations mm. and then saying and by the way the genuine crop circles, because there are man-made ones as yeah, well. Yeah, there are fake ones, yeah. And, and one can tell the difference if one knows what one's looking for. Okay. Uh, it was a, a small leap just to say, well, you know, if you like pyramids and you like Stonehenge, then you're going to really like this because it's the next stage of sacred space. And I actually found that people actually who were sitting on the fence about crop circles suddenly began to go and look at the crop circles and seeing that we really are talking about the same thing and they achieve exactly the same effect. Uh, we have alterations of consciousness in temples. We have alterations of consciousness in crop circles and so on. So it wasn't really that big a switch. It was more of a sort of an advertising twist because um, my background was in advertising and mm. I always had to sort of sell a difficult product to a skeptical public. I'm doing exactly the same thing now <laughs> and using the technique, you know, not to um, lie to people because that's not what advertising really is. All you're doing is telling people that a product exists and you have to solve the problem of communication. So it was essentially using the tools of communication to tell people, you know what, you may have not paid attention to this, but there's something much more important uh, behind the scenes and you should take a look at it. 
Yeah, and your forte, I would say, uh, at least what I've so associated you with for all these years, is precisely sacred geometry. And, um, of course, it's a short step from there to crop circles. I mean, you're almost obliged to be interested in crop circles if you're into sacred geometry. And you being, oh, absolutely. Right, and you being originally from United Kingdom and all. So, But uh, in a way, I, I get it now, because it's sacred geometry... <laughs> It's also permeating this field of ancient antediluvian stuff. So that's a short step too for you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, it's uh, it, it even goes beyond that. I mean, geometry is essentially the expression of a vibration, uh, which is not physical. So yeah. uh, geometry essentially is the product of an underlying vibration. Once you get to that point, you are in a very, very interesting field altogether. I mean, if you look at the way that we throw sound at water and we capture the photograph of sounds when it interacts with water or a physical uh, medium like powder, for example, you get that sacred geometry inherent in the actual expression of sound. So it's really about the vibration behind uh, the uh, the physical um, interpretation. It's the, the geometry is almost the last expression of uh, an, an invisible tool, if you like. Mm. Uh, but that's what makes it interesting. It makes it easier for anyone to understand because it's beautiful, it's elegant, and of course, as humans, we are naturally attracted to order and beauty. So what better way to communicate uh, with people, and especially in the old days when uh, language was difficult, uh, writing was unknown, you create temples which are beautiful and elegant because that geometry is extracted from nature, from the observation of nature. And once you understand what each geometry does in nature, then you can apply that geometry in your temple and you create the same effect, but on a, on a much physical, much greater sense. And anyone who interacts with the temple then becomes part of that geometry. And hopefully they'll also uh, come out of the temple feeling much more perfect than when they entered. And it's the same thing with crop circles. I mean, when you think about the fact that when you look at the picture, you are drawn to the uh, the picture, you walk in the field. and But once you're inside the actual design, something else is happening. Mm. There is an interaction at the cellular level, which we've uh, been able to uh, to work out. Uh, we've been able to prove that there are alterations in consciousness. There's healing modalities involved. Same in the pyramids. Uh, exactly the same as a pyramid. It's mm. exactly the same thing. Uh, so was, uh, so uh, these people, these entities that were making the crop circles, they knew exactly what they're doing. They're, they're using the geometry as a bait, and they're getting your attention. And when you're in there, your consciousness is very much altered. It's interesting you tie it to music. You know, Pythagoras has a quote, music is numbers in time, geometry is numbers in space. Exactly. And I do believe uh, it's, you know, if you go to places like the Giza, uh, you know, the resonance, we know that Gebekli Tepe seems to be tuning forks of stone. <laughs> the soul- <laughs> They're actually tuned, by the way. The, uh, the, the, I actually read an account... Of, from the Psychoacoustics uh, Institution, and they actually did experiments on the stones, and they find wow. they're very finely tuned if you tap them. Uh, like most standing stones, for example, in uh, Orkney, uh, not too far from uh, from. Orkney. Yeah, the Orkney stones. Yes, yes, I know about them. Yeah, the stones are standing. Right out, uh, you know, the, it's right out on the sea from where I'm watching right now. <laughs> it's not far. <laughs> uh, I, I've just come from there, actually. Uh, an amazing time. I, I love it up there. You're often back in the old country? 
Uh, I take tours. Uh, I, I either take very large tours of about 26 people to sacred sites, uh, but I also do very small tours of just six people. Uh, we have a lot of fun. Uh, we get a lot of work done, and we spend a lot of time at the pub as well. Um, so I've just come back from Scotland to do a lot of the sacred sites from the Hebrides all the way mm. down the West Coast. And uh, it's still one of the few places left where you can actually go without tourists, which is so nice. Hey, uh, how, how do one go about to book you? I mean, you must be the optimal guide to places like this. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, there are people who come again and again and again and again. Uh, it's like the um, all the things are listed on my website at invisibletemple.com. Mm. So, uh, so do get on the mailing list because the Egypt trips. Um, I think we have 180 people on a waiting list for the next wow. one. Uh, yeah, and uh, one. But of that, the that's heavy competition. I know Shock is organizing stuff like that too. Yeah, but you know, Robert is very different. <laughs> no, I, I like him. He's a wonderful guy, actually. Yeah, yeah. we're all, we're all discussing it from a different point of view, so it depends what kind of point of view you want to go for. Yeah. Uh, Robert, of course, is incredible with his geology, uh, which is a, another wonderful topic. Uh, I try yeah. to bring a, a holistic point of view, which comes at it from different angles. But I also, uh, I, I never tell people the truth. I always tell them the facts. Mm-hmm. I let people find out the truth for themselves at right. these places because I want them to experience the sites personally. And I leave a lot of personal time where people can just wander quietly. And these people are not the same when they come back. But that's the whole point, you see. Yeah. That's a very good esoteric principle. Give them the keys. Don't open the door. Absolutely. I mean, if my truth is my truth, it's not your truth. Yeah. Uh, so my truth is of no use to you if I wake up tomorrow morning and discover that my compass was pointing south, <laughs> which means that your compass has been pointing the wrong direction. So that's not uh, the way that uh, any any good teacher would uh, would no. do. I'm, and I've been very fortunate to have people. The only valid truth for everyone is that when it comes to truth, it's not one size fits all. <laughs> exactly. It's impossible. But I think we're all on an individual journey. I think it's wonderful to have people who are able to provide uh, tools for your personal development. But after that, you're on your own. You have to develop your own uh, vocabulary. You have to develop your own tuning forks. And then, you know, you finesse and you fine tune as you get more experience. I mean, I, I can't say I've got it absolutely right. And I've been doing this for over two decades. I'm still learning. Uh, I'm always amazed how little I know. Despite mm. six books, I still don't know that much. Uh, and that's what makes it fun. And at the same time, it helps you to you know, retune your individuality and you also have to also once in a while accept that you're wrong about something and that's fine with me. I, I've adapted some of my theories because I didn't have all the information and once we have more information, we finesse the theory. There's mm. absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's just being honest. Tuning again. Exactly. So let's get back to topic at hand. Um, we have, you know, most people now agree that there was some kind of catastrophe, not just one, like you said, uh, many. And uh, I guess it also depends on how far back you want to go. Exactly. But a big question is, and if we focus on the driest period, which is, well, when is it? Is it like 10,000 to 15,000? Is that what you said? The uh, old, the younger Dryas, which is the one that we're all talking about, is uh, 10,800 BC to 9,700 BC. And there were two other Dryas periods before that. Okay. But what do you think, according to your research, was the cause for it? Because that's where they're fighting now, the causes. 
Oh, it's absolutely a fragment of a comet. And uh, we now have a lot of evidence to show that the beginning of the Younger Dryas, which is 10,800 BC, uh, we found the actual craters and impact sites. Uh, there's at least, oh, something like 5,000 of them along the eastern uh, American coast. Uh, they, they can still be seen from the air. Um, it seems to have impacted most of the northern hemisphere, uh, which created huge problems because that was covered with a big ice sheet. So when you have a lot of bit fragments of rocks hitting the ice and they're very hot, that starts creating a lot of melting. They recently just found a 19-mile-wide crater underneath a retreating glacier in Greenland. Uh, and uh, that's uh, I think it was found about two months ago. Uh, the wow. second one was a bit more problematic because it seems to have hit the southern hemisphere uh, where there's a lot of water. And uh, looking for craters under the ocean has been very problematic. But many of them have already been found. And uh, when you start matching the stories of indigenous people such as the Hopi or the Egyptians uh, and even the Waitaha of New Zealand, you start looking at all of their stories and they all talk about exactly the same thing. And that is that uh, in, in the most recent catastrophe, there were definitely burning mountains coming out of the sky. They talk about the uh, the comets as a, a one-eyed uh, a one-eyed bird with a long tail. That's their way of describing it. Uh, they talk about the uh, dirt falling out of the sky, the darkness that followed for months, the massive tidal waves that were created by the projectiles hitting deep parts of the ocean, which I you know, when, when you start reading 184 flood myths uh, back to back, <laughs> you begin to get a sense that they these are eyewitness accounts. Yeah. Uh, because if we weren't speaking to each other back then, that's the conventional view. We didn't have the means to contact each other across the world. Uh, by the way, uh, which is quite wrong, by the way, people were getting around very easily. Hayadol proved that. Oh, absolutely. They were master seafarers. Mm -hmm. So how come the stories are so identical and they talk about the same thing? And uh, when you when you hear a story from Tibet of the tidal waves crossing the Himalaya, now you have a problem because you wonder, is this metaphoric or is this an eyewitness account? Well, I found the report in the um, I think it's a projectile studio in Los Alamos where the government does ballistics reports. And that they actually published a paper suggesting that a, the right size of object falling out of the sky in a deep part of the ocean will generate, by its kinetic force, a plume of water three miles high. So when that comes back down to the ocean, it will create um, shock waves uh, through the ocean, which you and I will feel as very large waves, and uh, once that reaches the continental shelves, then the original height of that plume will be reestablished. So a three-mile-high three tsunami is not out of the question if you have a one-mile piece of rock hitting a deep ocean. So I am very wary that these stories are very real. They're eyewitness accounts, and they all corroborate each other in the same thing. Okay, but when we consider causes, that doesn't have to be an either-or, but we, we have options. Uh, there are people like Shock are proponents of the sun. The sun is the cause, and we do see the sun is acting funny these days too. Uh, so there are cycles and cycles, and then you have the electrical universe people, you know, Thornhill and those. So, But you are fully behind the, the comet thing. Uh, I, I'm also open to Robert's theory. I think he's on the right path. 
Uh, I do agree that there are times when there are mass coronal injections. Mm. The problem with the that particular theory in terms of the uh, end of the younger Dryas is that there's not one account from any ancient culture that talks about the sun or massive heat from the sun. They are very adamant that it was broken rocks coming out of the sky and the creating massive tidal waves, uh, that cannot be the product of a mass coronal ejection. I think that sometimes the two go hand in hand, and there yeah. are accounts from New Zealand where they do talk later on, and there have been at least 13 known near catastrophes since the Younger Dryas, by the way. One of them was in Europe in the 12th century. So we're just coming out of that uh, problem in the Northern Hemisphere. But in one case in New Zealand, they do talk about the firewater uh, which is a kind of um, a petroleum-like substance that suddenly comes out of the sky, but that too appears to be the product of the uh, a comet's tail. So the Earth goes through the comet's tail, which is composed of the same ingredients as petroleum, uh, and when that uh, comes into contact with the Earth's uh, atmosphere and oxygen, it literally catches fire. So mm. I don't think it's wrong. I just don't think that that is what happened at the end of the Younger Dryas because there's not one account that talks about the sun or any projections out of the sun. They definitely talk about big rocks uh, hitting the water. Yeah. What's his name? The bearded fellow uh, into sacred geometry. Friend of Graham. Um, oh, God. Uh, uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> well, this one is well known. Um, I'm blanking. Pardon? With a beard. Yeah, with uh, a beard. He's a mason. Uh, he's run a sacred geometry school. But he's more known for being a proponent of, of what you're talking about now. I, I'm just blanking on his name. Keith Critchlow? Uh, nope. He's been uh, several times on Joe Rogan together with Hancock. I can't think of his name right now. We'll have to get back to that. Um, he can't be that important if we can't remember his name. Oh, he's great. We're going to have him on. Uh, I'm going to find out right now and I'm going to edit this out. Hang on. That's the advantage of podcast. You can <laughs> you can add, add it. Well, you can leave it in. It's much more human. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Randall Carlson, obviously. Ah, okay. Yes. So he's done uh, deep research into this. I wonder, but do you distinguish, because a comet is a comet, but you also have this phenomenon with meteorites. In fact, I read recently that two months of a year, uh, June is one of them, I forgot the other one, there's heightened risk for uh, traveling through this belt of objects. April, yes. You know, no, I, I actually wrote a whole chapter on this in the book. Uh, I was coming at it from a different point of view. And in fact, I wasn't actually familiar with uh, Randall Carson's theory. Uh, sometimes I tried to switch off uh, from other people's uh, ideas just to so that if I can, yeah. you know, I can take my own direction. Mm. And incredibly, um, they end up overlapping. Uh, there was yeah. one case where I was doing something about the alignment of temples around the world. And I found out uh, after thinking I'm so clever that Graham Hancock had exactly the same idea. And we laughed about it because he approached it from a very complicated angle. I approached it from a much simpler <laughs> angle. And we reached the same conclusion, uh, which is great because yeah. we're validating each other's work exactly. without being aware of it. And that's wonderful. Um, it's... Uh, Oh, what was the question again? <laughs> well, it was uh, about traveling through this, these objects. Uh, oh, yes, the uh, debris field. Which is not a comet, obviously. 
Well, yeah, actually it is. Originally, apparently it was. It's oh. the remains of Comet Enki. It's, a, it's almost like a mini planet. It's been theorized by a number of uh, astrophysicists. And they said that about 30,000 years ago, uh, there was this big mini planet which turned into a comet. It literally just broke up. And uh, it seems to be the culprit for, for so many things happening here on Earth. Because uh, one of the things that I found uh, very interesting was that when I was in Peru a few years ago, I noticed that they were celebrating May Day uh, in November, except it wasn't May Day, because obviously in the Southern Hemisphere, the calendars are upside down. <laughs> uh, and uh, we celebrate May Day in the Northern Hemisphere in May, obviously. But it wasn't. They were celebrating the Day of the Dead. Now, they only celebrate the Day of the Dead uh, in the Southern Hemisphere in, uh, in May, uh, uh, which is, of course, November and uh, Halloween in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. But they also have another Day of the Dead in May down there. And I think that's a very weird thing to be celebrating the dead twice a year. Well, it turns out that they also do the same thing throughout the Pacific before Christians arrive to change the calendars. And it suddenly dawned on me that uh, there's a worldwide trend in celebrating the dead in uh, early November, and that the only thing that made any sense to me was that there must have been something that happened in that mm. time uh, that came out of the sky that is synonymous with that uh, with the Earth going through a portion of space that it seems to collide with some kind of uh, stream of uh, debris, and it uh, the only one that made any sense was the torrid meteor shower, and it's true uh, every November the Earth spends two weeks traveling through this very wide field of uh, rocks called the torrids, and then it does again in June. Yeah. The biggest difference is that in June, uh, it comes from the side of the sun, which means we cannot actually see those rocks very clearly. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. And uh, that's what happened in uh, Tungusta back in uh, 1908, I believe. That was also in June. And every time you look at any uh, catastrophes that we've been able to find, it's always early November and also middle of June when the big problems happen. And in fact, if you look at the uh, traditions of the Native American people, the Hopi and the Zuni, all of their teachings, uh, especially the learning of the initiate and the, and the um, sharing of ancient knowledge that was given to the Hopi by uh, a group of um, advanced people called the Lookers, which are also called the Watchers, um, they basically said that uh, this is a reenactment of the time when the earth was destroyed. So we always remember this time of the year for 17 days in the Kivas to remind ourselves that everything is cyclical. Uh, it's bound to come around and we should always be prepared and, and also get on with our lives, not live in fear, obviously, because people will survive and some people won't. But that's the way it is down here on Earth. So I found the theory rather compelling that we have yeah. a connection with astrophysics. We have the way that the Earth goes through space twice a year, always crossing this field of debris. And uh, there's also a bit of a warning in this. Because um, the thing that really amazed me was the fact that people like the Maya inherited calendars that track 140,000 years of time. And I'm thinking, people back then didn't have a lifespan more than 60 years. Why would you need such a ridiculously long calendar mm. when all you needed to do is put some sticks on the ground uh, in order to find out where the sun and moon is to figure out when to plant your seeds and when to harvest them. Uh, it seems to me that the ancestors were fascinated with very long spans of time in order to calculate what was coming up uh, in the Earth's period when they were living so they could be prepared for any potential disasters. Uh, and I found the theory to be quite elegant because so many indigenous cultures talk about exactly the same thing. 
But, uh, Freddy, this is the middle of June today. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm guess, I guess we have to hold our breath uh, each June. Uh, yeah, we, we should end this podcast right now. I'm going to a cave. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're invoking stuff here, man. I did notice that there are some astrophysicists and mathematicians that have actually been making projections about, uh, and now that also we have deep space telescopes, um, and this is a very dark and sobering part of the interview, it's the (laughs) fact that um, at least within this decade, we seem to be okay. It's the next decade we should be concerned about, 2030 to uh, 2042. Uh, it seems to be, uh, and this is just the mathematicians talking, they're saying that there's um, um, a projection where certain parts of this torrid meteor stream are more dense than others, and they've calculated using their methods mm-hmm. that uh, the uh, decade in the 2030 seems like Earth is going to be having some very close shaves with uh, uh, total annihilation. Uh, you know, and there is an antidote for this, which I won't go into because that's uh, part of the um, the good message of the book. So mm. it's I'm not going to spoil it. No. There is there is a good a, a, a silver lining to this story, but they are saying that there are some very large chunks which will be uh, the timing of the Earth will be rather mm, opportune for uh, messing things up really badly. Now they're not the only ones that are saying this because if you ask the Maya. And, uh, and when they inherited their information from their predecessors, who were the people who escaped at the big continent in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, and they have the exact date for this, by the way, which is exactly the same date that Plato was talking about, mm-hmm. uh, they said that um, the whole idea of 2012 uh, uh, was laughable. Uh, people got so uptight about this date being the end of the world, they said, but it's not really the end of the world. It's the closing of a cycle, but that doesn't mean something is going to happen. There is a big window of opportunity here. Uh, 2012 was just the midpoint of this window. Uh, The window is 60 years, so there's 30 years either side. Mm. Well, if you add that to 2012, now you have 2042. So Mm. even they are saying that in the last section of the window, there is the potential for some big, big changes to come to go from one cycle to the next, which the Indians uh, of, uh, you know, and I'm talking about Native American people, I'm talking about people from India, mm-hmm. they say exactly the same thing about the Yugas. The closing of every cycle is marked by big changes in uh, geology, the atmosphere, and potential catastrophe. So a lot of things beginning to add up around 2030 to 2040. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be around, but uh, um, it's certainly... There is a bit of an antidote and uh, there's a bit of a lining to all of this. Yeah, but another silver lining is that we have about 10 to 20 years to get straighten out the mess we're in now in terms of sociopolitics. So if we get clever people into power exactly. and take decisions, maybe maybe we can try to use science for protection because none of these, as long as the uniformitarians are ruling the paradigm, We'll just be staring into a navel and nothing will happen. Exactly. But speaking of that, um, would you say that the cause for the Torrids is, uh, you, I, I guess you're familiar with Tom Van Flandern's exploded planet theory, you know, the big one, water-based planet between Mars and Jupiter? 
Uh, yes, I'm familiar with that one. I, I, I'm not sure that that's the one that uh, the consensus uh, agrees on this. Uh, they, do, they do seem to be quite adamant that the uh, the elliptical orbit of the Taurid meteor stream really comes from an object that seems to cross into the solar system uh, for a long period of time. It seems to have been something that was here um, a long time ago. Uh, that, that, that's Max of Sitchin. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not going towards Sitchin, believe me. Uh, (laughs) uh, I don't. He made a lot of things up, unfortunately. Um, He didn't make all of them up, but uh, he made a few of them up. No, I'm actually quoting a lot of the astrophysicists who are tracking the position, the original position of uh, Comet Enki, um, as they call it, which is the one that broke up and created this this torrid meteor shower. They seem to think that it was some kind of... um, extra solar system uh, mini planet that was going around and around um, and it seemed to cross the uh, the solar system and just and also cross earth's orbit uh, once in, in in a while every couple of thousand years so mm-hmm. i'm going to sort of go with that idea because uh, they know more about it than i do uh, mm-hmm. I, you know you'd have to really be an astrophysicist to track uh, orbital paths of objects which uh, start in deep space I, I, I mean, sometimes I kind of look at the other way around and look at, you know, there is this big asteroid field in between Mars and Jupiter, yes, but uh, that has but that's a very definitive uh, orbit in between those two planets. We don't seem to be affected by that unless something comes from out of uh, the solar system, hits one of those exactly. objects, and that comes towards us. Now, that's also a possibility, absolutely. But again, if you uh, look at the indigenous stories, they do say that the, this is an object or objects which seem to herald from somewhere deeper into space. Yeah. And, it, and this particular path just happens to be um, aligned at a certain degree uh, into our solar system. It's just one of the unfortunate things. I think I read about it because uh, I was thinking about, when I read it, I was thinking that, now confirming what uh, historical New Agers have been talking about all these years, because <laughs> because they do say there is now a planet uh, or an object out there which is far beyond Pluto and which do regularly come. They say, in fact, it, it does circle around the sun. Of course, it's not a circle. It's a very uh, weird uh, kind of uh, elliptic thing that uh, causes havoc. So, so it's probably the same thing you're talking about here. I think there's there's overlapping things going on here. Um, I mean, when you're talking about deep space and you're talking about uh, projection of mathematics, you're being very abstract. Mm. Uh, I think that we're all struggling to find the answer to this. And But I do think that we're kind of going in towards the same area. Uh, it's just that no one has a, a true consensus of what it actually is. I think we all have different views on it, but we seem to be within the same region. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's now leave deep space and go back to Earth. And I want to get soon enough to a very intriguing aspect of your book, which hasn't been written about from so many authors, but we'll not get there yet. And that's the anthropology aspect. But first, I want to ask you about the missing lands, the land itself. Okay. Uh, you know as well as me that uh, there was something called Doggerland up here. And uh, also, I don't know if you know this, but it's very interesting. Uh, apparently, the original inhabitants of Scotland and the Hebrides and uh, land that was in the Northern Sea back in the day, that 
the first Celts or the first settlers in northern uh, Britain encountered these people allegedly. Exactly. Of course, they're now gone. I forgot what they were called. So, but let's not discuss the people yet. But what about the lands? When you say missing land, then you are suggesting that there was lands like Dogaland that existed that now is gone because of the flood. Uh, absolutely, uh, it was the uh, pretty much the basis for the entire book. Uh, I suddenly began, uh, became very obvious to me that these groups of gods that went around the world teaching human civilization, they appear to be living very separately from humans. They were here at the same time. They were very physical. Uh, they the way they're, they're described suggests that they were humanoid. They were just a little bit different. They were very tall anywhere between eight and a half to ten feet tall. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what this is in meters. Um, and also they were light-skinned compared to the indigenous people. Uh, they were red-headed or blonde. They had green or blue eyes. The, the quintessential Nordic um, ideal, uh, for example. And uh, they appeared to be living very in very secluded environments. And because they were master seafarers and astronomers, I suddenly got the idea they were living on islands. And uh, the more I looked into this, the more I began to realize that there were at least seven locations around the world where they actually did exist. Uh, only two of them are actually uh, above water today. Uh, one of them is, of course, is in Tiwanaku uh, in, in Bolivia, mm-hmm. where we have a temple culture that is anywhere between 15,000 to 32,000 years old, uh, depending on the alignments of the temples. And also up near Mount Ararat, uh, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, uh, where they were the seats of the lords of Anu, uh, who always get a very negative reaction. And I've rehabilitated them totally in the book because <laughs> I don't think enough people have read the real story about the Anunnaki and the Watchers to, you know, make a, a very educated decision. No, that's a Sitchin disease. Uh, exactly. And then the ancient aliens take it over. You know, the New Age just doesn't read books. They're just going by what the word is spread. So exactly. that's the bad guys. Yeah. And it's all conflating with different heroes. David Icke, Illuminati, everything. So now they are like these uh, reptile uh, controller uh, Oh, God. Uh, yeah. but, uh, I've completely taken that out. No, these are the gods. Yeah. These are the gods, right? Uh, these are the gods. And basically the, the reptile connection comes from a complete misunderstanding of the fact that their title of office were the people of the serpent. Uh, all it is, the serpent is the symbol of the earth's energy and how mm. it behaves. It always has been. It still is today. Kundalini. <laughs> Um, and so they, so they, they were just giving the, the title of office, like a badge, and it just it identified these people as understanding mm. the laws of nature. Mm. Uh, we had them in Portugal. We, uh, they were found in the Yucatan, and they're all the, the teachers of old. These were benevolent people. I've never heard a bad thing said about them. Uh, but going back to the original uh, point about the lands yeah. is the fact that they all seem to be living on islands. And um, I came across a couple of accounts in the Pacific, which is full of interesting information and it never gets enough credit and that they were saying that you know there's no way we're going to even begin to understand what the earth looked like before the flood Uh, Robert Schock agrees with me on this uh, off the record and they said yeah I mean we can make educated guesses as to what the landmass used to look like but you've got erosion you have sediment uh, you have uh, altering of tides and sea levels all we can do is have an educated guess as to what things looked like 11,000 years ago and the point of these wisdom keepers was that you, we have a, a general idea of where these original lands were. They all sank and something else came up. 
Uh, one of the biggest surprises in my research was coming into contact with the last remaining wisdom keeper in the Cook Islands, a small island called Tongareva. It's only about 20 feet above sea level now. Uh, there's only 200 people living there. And uh, it was my privilege to be able to finally record his story on paper. And he said, you know, if anybody wow. disagrees with you, Mr. Silver, um, just have not contact me because I've got the entire list of people going all the way back to the flood who were the wisdom keepers. Uh, so I'm hoping that it stays alive long enough for me to give him a copy of the book. Where, where, and, <coughs> hang on, where was this? <coughs> this is in the Cook Island groups, which is in Polynesia. Oh, you Polynesia. Have so this is an inhabitant, a native of Polynesia? Exactly. Wow. Uh, he's one of the last surviving wisdom keepers of that particular island. So, but, but how did they record this stuff? It's not reading and writing, right? It was oral transmission from one person to the next, yeah, just course. like the Druids used to do. Yep. Uh, they remembered everything. And yep. now, of course, that they're all beginning to disappear. They want to tell somebody because this information should never be forgotten. And uh, one of the f amazing things that he told me was that, uh, yes, we had a group of people that you would call gods. They were advanced people. They knew about the stars, great navigators. And they gave us the knowledge. And they were here in the Cook Islands in 3000 BC. And I thought, well, that's not the period that I'm looking at here. I'm looking at the, the, the flood before that. Uh, yes, there was an inundation that happened around 3000 BC that raised sea levels about 20 feet. Uh, it created the Persian Gulf. But that's not what I'm looking at. And he said, well, and he, he stops me and he says, well, I want to continue. He said, they were called the Tupanaki. And I said, wow. that sounds very much like the Anunnaki. They said, yeah. yes, you call them the Anunnaki, or as they call them in India, the Anunnagi, mm. the people of the serpents. And I said, so they were here in the middle of the Pacific in 3000 BC. Yes, they were coming here for a long, long time. Uh, in fact, they've been coming here for 7,000 years because they originally came all the way from a, a circular island with canals where today's Arabian Peninsula now is. So when the flood came, the uh, landmass uh, went under the ocean and the Arabian Peninsula went up, which is the reason why there's a desert there now. It used to be under the ocean. So looking for this landmass, you're not going to find it unless you find the tips of the mountains of that particular island. And so that was one of the big highlights of this research was to find uh, one of those missing lands that you never even heard of because we're so focused on Atlantis and Lemuria, we've actually forgotten that there may have been other centers of civilization. And in fact, there were. Oh, my God, I have a million questions now. <laughs> and, you, and you blew the lid I was trying to contain about the uh, uh, ancient people. But, but before we uh, even go down those roads with you, I want to rewind a little. You said uh, there's two places today that uh, is still remaining and five others are gone. I want you to uh, – one of them was obviously where you um, – in Polynesia where you met this chap. Uh, I wasn't clear about the other place that still exist and w where are those five places that is gone? I'll try and remember all of this. I've still got jet lag. Um, <laughs> so we have obviously Atlantis. It used to be called Atal in the yeah. old language. Yeah. Uh, this is where the priests, a magician priest called the Its came from after the after it sank for the third time in the in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And there were other islands there. Uh, they became the underlying people that uh, created the Maya culture. So this is where we get the word Chichen Itza from. Uh, it was those people. 
Um, so that was one. Uh, Lemuria was much more interesting because the Hopi uh, originally came from a land called Muya. And in South America, it was called Mul. So Lemuria is actually a variation of the same word, but apparently it was a couple of different islands in the middle of the Pacific, and one of them was also somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Mm. The, uh, then we have, of course, uh, Tepitaka, which is the one that our friend from uh, Tongareva was talking about, that is now where the Arabian Peninsula used to be. And uh, the two that are still above water, uh, which kind of, they kind of form islands within themselves in a matter of speaking. Uh, one is between in the, the mountain range between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, All right. uh, where, they, yeah. where they have found the remains of a large ship on the side of the hill, by the way. Mm. You can see it on Google Earth. And the uh, Christians immediately associate that to Noah. But, with Noah, uh, except Noah. Was, but that's older. That's much older. It's Gilgamesh. Oh, Noah was a... He was uh, like older than the Mesopotamians. I mean, you have to understand mm. that uh, the entire, in fact, if I can paraphrase the Babylonians here, they said that when the um, the Hebrews uh, were in captivity and the Jews were in captivity in Babylon, uh, they basically stole all their the knowledge about the uh, origins of the flood and the gods, and mm. they put it into something later called the Bible, but they added their own religious and um, political dogma in order to show off, you know, their superior cultural superiority in that mm. region. Mm. Uh, but again, the Babylonians also did the same thing to the stories that they inherited from the Sumerians. So everybody does this, in, yeah. you know, in time. It's not just one particular nation that wants to be superior to another. Everybody does this. Um, and uh, the story really is based on an original story that was uh, inherited by the Mesopotamians, who are quite young compared to the people before them. We don't even know what they were called, but they do call the fact that Noah was the great-grandson. He actually had a different name, and I cannot remember what it is, but his grandson was Enoch. Now, Enoch is the Hebrew name. His original name was Enet Uanu, who was basically one of the Anunnaki. And Uanu uh, is essentially the original name for Orion, the constellation of Orion. So this was a wisdom keeper who was also a scribe, and he wrote down his meetings with the lords of Anu, who then eventually becomes uh, added to as one of the apocryphal gospels of the Bible called the Book of Enoch, which in my opinion is most, the most interesting book of all, and no one ever gets to read it. And people should because it really tells you a lot about what was going on in that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. So this was, again, that area around Mount Ararat. Uh, and the last one was um, in Lake Titicaca, uh, Tiwanaku, Pumapunku. Uh, mm, they used to be the world's oldest temples until we found uh, Gunung Padang in uh, Indonesia. The entire mountain is a massive pyramid. Uh, and um, Graham Hancock was very good about bringing the uh, information about that from the local archaeologists. Uh, a guy called Danny, and I cannot pronounce his surname, so I'm sorry about that, Danny. Uh, but the whole mountain has been found to be completely artificial, and it's said to have survived a flood. So, so there must be entrances and, and, and caves and stuff. There, uh, they've already dug into the actual top of the uh, this mountain. They found it's a nine-step pyramid, and they have extracted. Um, data which suggests that there are pillars in there which were definitely man-made of, of a non-local geology but also organic matter which they could carbon date to 22,000 BC so that is now older than Tiwanaku 
because the alignment of the temples of Tiwanaku, the uh, these, the big courtyard is aligned to 15,000 BC. If you follow the theory that the temples commemorate the date when that they were built relative to the sky that they were looking at. So once you understand what the pillars are looking at on the horizon, you can get a, a very accurate date, mm-hmm. uh, much like Robert uh, Robert Boval did with the Great Pyramids. Yeah. Um, and uh, But the earliest sites, there's three earliest sites at Tiwanaku, which are, uh, appear to be aligned to 32,000 BC. So, so that, And it's also been described as a navel of the earth, a place where the gods uh, first set up shop. And I found corroboration for this story in the traditions of the Waitaha of New Zealand, who've also just had their oral traditions published. And they said that back in the day when they were living on Easter Island, when it was composed of several islands, that the gods used to come all the way from uh, Tiwanaku, all the way to Easter Island. They used to set up shop there for uh, a few days, talk to the people, give them knowledge. And then they sailed on to the um, uh, the South Island of New Zealand to a place called the birthplace of the gods. And they are not exaggerating. I was just there for two months uh, in the winter and I've been there six times. That's the name of the chapter three in your book too. Oh, it's, it, it had to be because mm. it's the most beautiful, wondrous place in the world and I can't get enough of it. Mm. Uh, so I'm so thankful for the Waitaha to have published this finally because it helped me to really understand how the gods got around, where they lived, and also the fact that uh, the way that they describe them links them to the other gods in other parts of the world. So we're mm. actually discussing a brotherhood of people yeah. uh, and a sisterhood. A global civilization. Yeah, and they, apparently there were 49 of them, and there were uh, seven groups of seven. So this is where I got to the point where there must have been seven homelands of the gods, mm. and each one of them housed a group of seven gods who were led by one charismatic leader, an eighth person. Uh, you know, like Virakosha, for example. Uh, he, he had seven uh, Huaiwai Panti, as they called them in the Ayamara, which are called Shining Ones. So Virakosha was also part of the Shining Ones. And these, these people lived for hundreds of years, right? Oh, God, they had extraordinarily long lifespans. Mm. I mean, whether you're talking about the Mesopotamians or the Egyptians, every one of them talks about the original gods having at least 800 years of life. They didn't seem to know death. Uh, it's only when they became more associated with the physical world, they said, or they spent more time here on the lower levels of Earth, uh, by which I mean the plains, not the mountains, mm. that they they found it very difficult to be here in, in physical form. Uh, and that's why they kept sort of uh, eating the fruits of a, a special tree that seemed to prolong their life. But also they had to anoint their skin with a certain oil as though the sun uh, and their skin didn't agree with each other, which is why they got the nickname the Shining Ones because of the the shining skin, but also because they were also shining because they were much more educated. So it gave them a certain elegance, a certain inner inner luminance. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, there's so many things. There's here. so many questions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let's. We have to cut it down to the most important. But uh, one more question about land. As for Atlantis, I've always been reluctant to jump on board with any specific location. I have, for the longest time, been sympathetic to the Atlantean Sea theory. Uh, but now there is this channel on YouTube called Bright Insight. I, I forget what the dude running it is called. But That's okay. Uh, for the first time, I'm actually marrying one theory. It seems that in Northwest Africa, Southwest Sahara, 
uh, incredible evidence. Uh, if you're not familiar with this theory or, or discovery, you should. Ch- I can send you the links. It's pretty impressive. Oh, the the circular geological feature. Yeah, the eye of what's it called? In, the eye of in Morocco. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty astonishing. It's it it, it fits so much so the descriptions. Uh, pretty well, yeah. yeah. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. By the way, you're talking about this huge pyramid. Do you think the Bosnian pyramid is genuine? I'm sort of on the fence about the, the Bosnian pyramids. Uh, I've, I'm looking at this, and um, you have to understand what geology can do. Uh, rocks do extraordinary things under certain uh, situations. I have seen what look like pyramids, perfect pyramids, in New Zealand, and I walk up close to it. It turns out that it's basically nature doing extraordinary things. So you have to be a bit careful. Yeah. You have to understand what, uh, what rocks can do. Mm. Uh, even here in uh, where I live in Maine, uh, there's a wall of granite uh, on a little area in a forest I go for a walk and, you know, and if I didn't know my subject uh, better than I do I would have said that that was an ancient city uh, so sometimes <laughs> under the right conditions rocks can uh, be made to look like they're a bit there by people but however having said that uh, I also am of the opinion having spoken to many people indigenous people around the world that it was not uncommon for people of old to look at natural substances that already suggested a certain shape, hmm. and then they were fashioned by human hands. They piggybacked on that, yeah. Yeah, they were basically, it's already half there, we may hmm. as well just shape it, because it saved us so much trouble. And um, I was uh, at a conference in Montreal with the archaeologist of the Bosnian Pyramids, a uh, very interesting fellow, he's very intense, yeah. uh, and um, I said, you know, it's interesting, it's, it's almost as though these... Uh, pyramids are actually natural, but they've been obviously fashioned by human hands because the evidence that you've come up with that suggests that it's been added to artificially. Uh, and I like that theory because it's 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 quite elegant and it also matches what we're looking at. Did, did said, he accept that theory too? Yeah, he's sort of, yeah. I mean, it's, he's not opposed to the fact that there was already something present that then it was reshaped by human hands, but uh, he's obviously taken the stage further and said the whole thing yeah. has been shaped by human hands. And I said, well, the one thing that would really convince me is that if uh, it wasn't just two pyramids, but there were three pyramids and they would be f- uh, arranged exactly in a perfect equilateral triangle. And his eyes just lit up and he said, how do you know this? I said, because in my second book, I actually also made the same discovery that all the world's major sacred sites are all aligned to each other according to perfect triangles, mm. sometimes as much as 1,600 miles apart. I don't know how they did it, but it's really impressive, and it can be repeated around the world. It can be proven. And he said, we've not actually mentioned this. There is a third pyramid in that valley, and it, it makes a perfect triangle. I went, right, well, wow. now you've got something. <laughs> so yeah. it's obvious. That's a, that's a circumstantial evidence. But, you know, this cast new lights on even the so-called Antarctica pyramid, because I don't know if you know this, but there's three of them in the same vicinity. It's the seen, normal one. Yeah, I've been there. I mean, I've, I've looked at uh, the whole thing on Google Earth. Um, 
if you actually look in Switzerland and uh, go over the Matterhorn, that looks like a, a very good pyramid too, but it's not. <laughs> it's a natural thing. The problem with a lot of these ideas, uh, and this is where you know conspiracy theories suddenly take hold, is the fact that you take an idea and you, fa- you put it as a fact, which is what I try to avoid. Uh, I like the idea that there was a civilization in Antarctica. There are several pieces of evidence to suggest that there once was. And I promise you, if, they, if it was officially discovered, they wouldn't come out with it it will take quite a while <laughs> it would take a huge while uh, we, we also should be careful in the fact that when satellites go over certain uh, features at the right time of day at the right height yeah. they will look like they're man-made so yeah. i'm keeping an eye on it i would like someone to go down there and actually take a look and say yes it's actually man-made or no it's just a, a natural feature that just happens to look like a perfect uh, pyramid so until someone actually goes there uh i basically i'm just going to take a good look and go well uh if it's true it'll be amazing i would not be surprised because the antarctic was ice free parts of the antarctic were ice free in 4000 bc uh they actually have found river sediments in the uh ross ice shelf area so we do know that this whole concept of the antarctic being completely frozen in ice is not that true there is evidence that only 6000 years ago there was running water there and th- and there was Excuse me, there was beach sand. Uh, so obviously it was a bit warmer in certain parts of the Antarctic and certainly life could have thrived there in one way or another. I mean, Eskimos do survive in that, those parts of uh, the freezing lands and they do quite well. So I'm just going to sit and wait and see what happens until someone goes there and says yay or nay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get to the people. Um, I have, uh, in my years keeping an eye on this subject, always been astonished to notice that they found, usually red-haired, but sometimes also maybe what we could call blonde, in the weirdest places like China. We know there's ancient people who lived there, and I think there's still descendants looking like that. We know Amero Indians had what we could call European features. Uh, We have in Australia, there's still black people being born there with red and and blonde hair. And you probably also know that in the Canary Islands, the original inhabitants, which didn't die out that long ago. I know a fellow who lives there who told me a lot about that. Uh, Allegedly, the original Canary Islanders were also Nordic looking. And... Then we have the interesting thing about the, uh, the Neanderthals. They think that's the origin to the ginger gene. <laughs> that they were, they weren't. Of course, they weren't these brutish apes that we've grown up with being uh, misinformed about. So there, there's a lot of uh, disparate traces of this feature around the world. And now you come in this book and you talk about a parallel civilization uh, or parallel people who we've already touched upon them. And by the way, just to uh, cover your back, uh, there is this chap called Robert Seffer. And he's talked about something similar, but he's accused of ethno-bias, which I think is to some degree justified. But you're just going by the data, right? You don't have an agenda, political or uh, agenda like that. 
No, and uh, I never have. And that's, I think, why a lot of people that uh, support me and follow my work, uh, they appreciate that. I'm not trying to ram my ideas down Mm. anybody's throats. I'm just following the evidence. I'm following the traditions of the oldest sources that I could get my hands on Mm. and let them speak because they were closer to the events than we are. I mean, who are we to judge what happened? Uh, We're just rummaging around in people's dustbins from 10,000 years ago, (laughs) hoping to find the truth. If they were closer to the events, I mean, even the builds of the pyramids were closer to the events than we are. So let's let's hear their story. And the more I go around the world, the more I collect information from the oldest possible sources, the more they they all link up and and paint a picture of people who were very humanoid. Uh, they were very comfortable with these people. They were. It's not like uh, some of the stories about the giants. I mean, I mean, true giant people who are 18 feet tall and they're still living on the Solomon Islands in the middle of Polynesia. Uh, this is a an established fact with the local island people, uh, and uh, they're saying that these people, these gods. They were just very, very tall. They were very humanoid. They were light-skinned, uh, and they had... How, how tall were they again? Um, well, according to the uh, Edfu building text in Egypt, and it's written on the wall at Edfu Temple, mm-hmm. uh, it was five cubits. So depending on which cubit you're using, that puts them at eight and a half to ten feet tall, which is consistent with the bones that uh, were found in the giant's graves in France and also in Britain and also in parts of America. So there is consistency. I have no idea how much feet is. How tall are you in terms of feet? Oh, I'm almost two meters. I'm six foot five. So it okay. would be just under just under four meters, I think. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's that that will be called a giant today. Yeah. I mean, but, but then again, if when I walk around in Peru, I'm considered a giant <laughs> compared to the local people. If I yeah. go to Norway and walk around in Oslo, I'm just normal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you know. uh, still, it gives us an idea. It's it's longer than I think it's even longer than the record holder, um, which is Turkish. I think he was three meters or something. So these are four meters. Uh, just uh, yeah, just uh, just three and a half meters. I I would say. I'm, I'm just guessing at the moment. Yeah, um, but but st- still not that tall that they couldn't breed with us. Well, there there were huge problems originally. Uh, there's a, first of all, there appears to have been a genetic mismatch. Uh, if uh, go back to the stories of the Near East and also the Wichita of Oklahoma, they said that at one point, and this is now way after the flood, uh, when the go- a few of the gods survived and fewer still were breeding because they're running out of people with whom to interbreed, whenever they tried to breed with human women, the women would give birth to babies the size of infants, which, of course, the mothers died at childbirth. Yeah. Uh, so they had to stop doing this because they were literally killing the mothers. Couldn't they use a human man and one of their women? Uh, no, because their, their secret to their longevity and their special abilities, they were said to have been incredible healers and psychics. It's in the sperm. The ability literally was in the blood. In the blood. They literally had to pr- uh, propagate the uh, the bloodline uh, in order to maintain that element of, for which they were renowned. So this is where we get to a point in Egypt where they were saying yeah. after the flood, you have the, uh, the followers of Horus who are half human, half divine because they had to find the right human match. And they had to, they had to resort to incest to protect the bloodline. Essentially, yes. And, of course, that created all kinds of genetic problems, and, mm. uh, um, which we eventually find with uh, Amenhotep III, his son Akhenaten, and, of course, Tutankhamun. Yeah. 
he looks like an alien. <laughs> uh, yes, it does. But by then, the genetic mismatch was already quite obvious. But now we're talking 8,000 years later. So we're talking a long span of time. Uh, but the same thing was happening uh, in uh, the Far East and also in South America. They tried to maintain that purity of bloodline to maintain that connection with uh, what they described as being one foot in this world and one foot in the next. Uh, they were of this planet, but yes, they were not quite of this planet. And that's the story I keep hearing from indigenous people again and again and again. They seem to be associated uh, always with the constellation of Orion. I always used to think it was a metaphor until I met groups of people who said, no, the connection was physical. They did have the ability back in the day to connect with the heart of Orion. They call it the heart of the sky. I thought it was Sirius that was the big thing. Sirius is also associated with this, and I still don't have enough information to make a decision on this. Mm. Sirius is also associated with wisdom, and of course, it's the star that follows Orion. The two are linked in some way, which I'm still not totally familiar with yet, and I want to do a bit more research on that. But definitely Orion, there's a lot more data on this, and they do suggest that the belt of Orion was almost like a, a portal into the heart of Orion, and from this, they could basically go anywhere. But it's always that focus on that constellation. And it's, I, I was a bit astonished about nine years ago when NASA made the incredible uh, admission uh, using the technology that we now have at our disposal that, and I quote, uh, every eight minutes, uh, magnetic portals link the Earth to the sun. And I'm thinking... Are these magnetic portals what the people in the Vedas, who uh, are there at least 8,000 BC, these books, they're saying that these uh, serpents that flow along the ground that are mirrored in the sky, that are the arrows of sorcerers. Essentially, if you once you read that slowly and you, get, you understand what they're trying to tell you, mm -hmm. they were describing 10,000 years ago the same thing that NASA is saying, that the Earth is connected to other parts of the solar system using these magnetic tubes. It only takes a, a, a leap of imagination to suggest that the entire universe is linked with these tubes of energy, these plasma events. So what if we could just expand our, our consciousness a little bit here and suggest that there was a time when people were able to connect with these portals, go from A to B, and who's to say they could not connect from the earth to Orion, because that comes up again and again and again in every indigenous culture. And uh, I, for one, uh, uh, believe them. I, why would they make this stuff up? If these mm. people were so ignorant and so backward and so hunter-gatherer, they would not have been able to make this stuff up unless they had direct experience of the uh, uh, of the whole event. And there were people that they said, once in a while the gods would take a very lucky human with them to their world to show a perfect state of being, and they would send them back to tell other people, hey, we don't have to drag women into our caves by the hair. Uh, we don't have to go around <laughs> killing animals for food. We don't have to make war. We can actually make a beautiful world here. We have all the accoutrements of civilization. We just have to respect and get along. And that's how they did it. They showed by example. So they were vegetarians? Uh, apparently, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. There were two cases in Central America and also in South America where Vida Kosha and the Itza uh, uh, shunned meat. They were able to live on vegetables, um, good exercise, and again, just a practice of um, 
using your inner temple to work with your own electromagnetic energy field, which of course is what we all are made of. The human body is an electromagnetic field. Uh, any Indian person who understands energy would say, well, what they're describing is the practice of Kriya Yoga. Mm. Uh, which is the manipulation of energy within the human body. You can sit there for six months as a practitioner and you don't move. You don't need to eat. All you need is air and you're still alive. So these people obviously practice a kind of natural uh, art, a natural technology. They had complete control over the laws of nature. Well, maybe you're right if if you're talking about uh, well-versed yogis who has practiced their whole life but this breatharian sect is is rubbish in my eyes uh, from what i've looked into then i i have more belief in the photosynthesis you know eating energy of the sun through the eyes seems to have That's some That's how i like it <laughs> <laughs> but there is um There is this yogi that they have researched. He's been sitting, like you describe, uh, in the laboratory. This is the classic thing. They always want them into the laboratory, right? <laughs> they do, don't they? <laughs> the military. The military did this, and they are mind-blown. They can't explain it. Exactly. It seems the, the only thing they found is that some kind of humid was dropping from his brain or something into his throat but other than that there's no sign of him uh, consuming even water uh, he occasionally drank some tea that's it yeah it's, well, and, and it lasted for months there's an even more extreme story to that which i found in a book from 1925 mm -hmm. uh, an englishman who was a skeptic uh, and by the way a skeptic is someone who doesn't draw a conclusion that's the true interpretation of a skeptic oh, oh yeah believe me we we've had many shows debunking the pseudo skeptics you don't have to explain that to our listeners they know the difference <laughs> oh i mean it's it's funny because they already the skeptics already come with an agenda well then you're not a yeah. skeptic you're a disbeliever and an ideologist by so, the way so yeah. this guy who's a, a true skeptic he went off to egypt and he said uh, i really want to understand how these people are able to do extraordinary things and would uh, he spoke to a, a fakir in uh, in cairo um, mm -hmm. I, they call him by a different name i can't remember what it is and uh, this man was renowned for literally bending the laws of nature and he just rolled his eyes and said well look you people in the west just don't want to believe that the human temple can achieve extraordinary things these are things that have been taught in my family for thousands of years we inherited these methods from the gods uh, this is something that anybody can do if you just apply yourself but okay i will agree to have myself buried alive uh, you'll have a guard uh, at all times 24 hours a day around my grave just leave a little straw so a little bit of oxygen can actually go into the actual box Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, on this day, at this hour, six months from now, you will dig me up. And they did. And um, the man just opens his eyes and he says, I'm hungry. <laughs> After six months. <laughs> After six months, I'm hungry. Uh, <laughs> Perfect reply. And, uh, and, you, and you listen to the same stories of Westerners who managed to penetrate Tibet and the highlands of Himalaya, and they have the equally same astonishing stories. So... I think that these stories are echoes of what the gods used to be able to do, yeah, stories yeah. that we now find incredible. But there are real people who took this information and they were able to practice it. I think they're still practicing all of this in remote parts of the world, which is why they don't want to really – they want to be left alone because they know that they're going to be turned into a freak show and 
they'll be put into laboratories by the military and turned into weapons. So I don't really blame them for keeping a no. low profile. Yeah, of course, all true situations has always done that. If you can see them um, on on TV, uh, they are either snake oil salesmen or just messengers. But here's the thing. Actually, uh, there was um, this chap who... Oh, now I'm blanking on this story. Okay, let's move on. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, incidentally, uh, you you brought up just very quickly. You mentioned yeah. snake oil. I always wondered why they always talking about snake oil salesmen. Yeah. I actually found that in the Far East, the and also in the in the Middle East in uh, ancient times, there was a uh, system of initiation where they did use the, um, the venom of the of the snake to actually not just uh, induce a near-death experience, which allowed the, bod- the soul to leave the body for several days and allowed the initiate to return fully enlightened, but they also used the snake venom to prolong the shelf life of goods. And to this very day, a lot of uh, herbalists in China still use a snake venom in uh, very low doses to prolong the shelf life of their herbs. So there wow. isn't truth to that snake oil yeah. story after all. No wonder they don't want people to sell snake oil. <laughs> It's rather funny, I think, and rather right on it. But uh, something a little scary is that a university, I think it was in California, has discovered the, I don't know if it's the gene, but there's some genetic research. They they call it the clue to long, longevity. Really? Yep. And when this was reported, I don't think it was intended to be a public news, but it became that. Uh, some people run with it, and then they speculated, oh, when will it be out for sale? But I guarantee you one thing, Freddy. If they have indeed discovered the clue to how we can live longer without applying ourselves, <laughs> then it will not be mass distributed. <laughs> It will not be sold on the street. Oh, I, I think that's actually a very good idea. I think there's a reason why we have a natural lifespan here. And, and, and the way that the world is at the moment, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but you know, we do, for the first time in recorded history, have the most number of people here. And we're struggling. I mean, uh, we are facing... A- yeah, but, but, but you know who will get these things. It's the people yeah, yeah. who are behind the, the worst things. Those are the people who will get access to this. I, I, I don't mind being surrounded by so-called gods, but they better have something to offer us, right? If it's, <laughs> if it's the worst of us becoming gods, then no thank you. Exactly. I'd rather live in the cave. But let's move on. Exactly. Uh, oh, actually, not move on, because I, I mentioned all these people around the world who were fair-skinned fair-haired. I know in your book you're talking about Polynesian blondes and Andy and redheads. I want you to go a little into the research because you, you, you may get some pushback when you claim that there are fair people. I, I want you to account for that a little so people know it's not just a weird notion you pulled out of your behind. Oh, God, no. I mean, this is all based on actual uh, records. I mean, when Captain Cook arrives in Polynesia, he was amazed to find that 40% of the people welcoming him on the beach were blonde or redheaded. Mm. Uh, there are many Polynesians, in fact, uh, at least 13 indigenous tribes in New Zealand also claim that they once intermarried with the gods, and that's why they ended up looking the way they do. They don't look very Polynesian at all. And uh, one of my favorite stories was actually a grandmother who belongs to the tribe called the Nati Hotu, uh, who, again, uh, come from uh, some of the Polynesian islands via Easter Island. 
And for many years, they were frustrated that the Maori have taken over the entire story of New Zealand, that they are the indigenous tribe. Oh, so there's others than they're just the Maoris? Uh, well, they're, they're saying that... Um, they basically were the, uh, the the original people that uh, landed there 1,200 years ago, uh, and they should get all the money uh, from the from the British, for, uh, right? You know who took over from them. Yeah. And uh, all of these people are saying, well, actually, no. If you actually read the tribal tradition of the Maori, they said that when they arrived in New Zealand, there were people welcoming them on the beach. So someone must have been in New Zealand to welcome the Maori. And they also described that there were many people who were very, very tall, and there were also blonde and red-headed people. So this grandmother of the Nati Hotu, who's still alive, by the way, she's a lovely person, uh, she said, you know, I sent my DNA test off to, um, I don't know which uh, one she used, because I wanted to prove that our traditions were correct, that we originated from Egypt, Mm. And we originated from uh, Mesopotamia. And eventually we were pushed out of those regions a long, long time ago, thousands of years ago. We were, went down to uh, Madagascar. We went on our boats around the Atlantic into the Yucatan, where we helped build a few temple cities. You might have heard of a few. Mm-hmm. And then we went down Central America, all the way down to Tiwanaku, uh, and hang around there for a bit. Then we got bored and we decided to go to Easter Island by boat. <laughs> Uh, where we stayed for a while, and eventually we ended up in New Zealand. Talk about going... To- and this is oral history. Uh, it's all oral tradition. And wow. uh, So she had the DNA sample uh, done, and uh, the results matched exactly what they had said about their oral tradition, that they originally were Egyptian people. And you look at her picture, and I've got a picture of her in my book. Mm-hmm. She looks like she, she, she's an Egyptian woman with a reddish blonde hair and uh, beautiful light eyes. And you checked that her, her parents wasn't an immigrant from, from the Middle East or something? No, these are very, very old strains of uh, DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. And the same thing is said also in parts of Asia. It's the same thing is said in, uh, in South America as well. In fact, South America has the added bonus of the fact that they describe the incoming gods as bearded. Now, men in Peru, they don't have beards. Yeah, I read that in your book. The gods had beard. I like yeah. that. I have beard. I mean, my, <laughs> it was, it was just a silly observation I made when I was with my Aymara guide in Peru. And I said, you know, you've got a beard. He said, yeah, but I'm not Peruvian. I am Ayamara. We come from a very old culture of people who survived a sinking uh, island in the middle of the Pacific called Mul. And in fact, there's another people called the Pukina, which are even older. And they still talk about Mul in their classrooms today because they don't want to forget where they came from. And they assisted the gods. So this is the origin to the, to the kings have to have beard uh, kind of archetype. Well, and this is where we get the bearded um, gods from uh, Mesopotamia, the Anu. Mm. And also, when you look at the statues of Osiris and all the Egyptian gods, including yeah. the women, they have the ceremonial beard because yeah. they are basically suggesting that they are part of that lineage. So when you look at people in the historical era, like uh, pharaohs such as you know Akhenaten or uh, Hatshepsut, um, they have the ceremonial beard because it's to link that peop- the, those people symbolically back to their heritage. So this is why it's very important to understand these stories are not just made up and they're not part of some kind of uh, recent genetic intermarriage. 
all of these people, what they have in common is that they originally, uh, um, after the gods survived the flood, and they were redistributing themselves on the remains of their homelands and moving to other uh, islands and also to the continental shelf, they eventually had to intermarry uh, with humans. It was difficult at first, but eventually they found a way. And that's where they got the strain for the blonde and the blue head. So it's really their words. It's uh, not my particular angle at all. This comes directly from the people who experienced this thousands of years ago. Did you just say blue haired? Uh, sorry, blue eyes. Blue eyes, okay. That would have been really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is this tradition about blue skinned people, very ancient. Well, the blue skin was, uh, from what I understand, it was actually symbolic interpretation. Um, all, every single resurrected God-man always appears with blue-green skin. So Osiris, Shiva, people like that. Mm -hmm. and it's to do with the, uh, it's a symbol to do with the uh, initiation. It's called the Raising the Dead, which is a completely other, uh, other book and a completely other topic to okay. go into. But it was just to uh, signify that these people had basically undergone a process of initiation where they right. had left the body in an induced near-death experience, mm -hmm. and they returned to tell the tale of what where they'd been on the other side, and they came back completely enlightened, yep. uh, at which point they were declared raised from the dead, which is a very, very old phrase. It goes back to Japan in 8000 BC, as far as I can trace it. And this, folks, is the origin to the word prophet. A prophet wasn't one who could see into the future and predict stuff. A prophet was one who traveled uh, to the other side and came back, but didn't just come back, came back with something applicable to us that we could what? use. Uh, we have Absolutely. it uh, surviving down to ancient Greece. To You're probably familiar with Peter Kingsley's work. So uh, we have the Hesha-style incubation that they practiced, the ancient incubation, yeah. healing prophets. Yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, that was yep. and essentially that was a, uh, a remake of the Near Eastern Egyptian practices. Uh, by the time the Greeks inherited it, it was kind of becoming illegal because the church was beginning to stamp this out. So they had to do it yeah. under different names. Uh, and they had really lost a lot of the original information. However, uh, when Plato was around and Pythagoras was around, they actually did the real initiation, the true yep. initiation. Yep. Uh, and Plato said it actually shaped his philosophical doctrine and shaped his uh, entire idea of metaphysics. Um, Pythagoras, he couldn't get enough of it. He did it five times. So Jeez. imagine having an induced near-death experience five times. Yeah. Uh, he was a real junkie for this thing. No wonder they regarded him as a god. Well, both <laughs> both Parmenides and Empedocles was big on this too. Parmenides even wrote about it, but it, it, just fragments have survived. But I think Peter Kingsley has cracked the code. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, what they teach in the university about these things are just rubbish. It's just like children trying to piece together a torn, advanced uh, book in mathematics or something. They have no clue. But uh, people like Peter Kingsley, I, I put huge stock in his uh, approach. Oh, good for him, yes. Yeah. So let's move on. Um, because we're pressed for time, but it's so interesting. People would have to get your book to go into details because I can see from the... Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you and your bank account agree. But if you look at the chapters, uh, you kind of list, uh, and that's a good thing, you list the sub 
topics and that is so it's so intriguing you have lots of chapters and many many subtopics but yeah the, I, I, like, I like the old-fashioned way in the old books in the victorian era where there were very detailed yeah. era and it's had, very old school they listed the uh, the, the, the topics and i thought there's a, there's a hundred thousand book uh, words in this book i think i need Jeez. to list the topics because it's even i get confused sometimes Oh, you don't usually do this in your books? Um, Sometimes I do. uh, The last one, which is The Lost Art of Resurrection, uh, I got tired of people saying, well, I don't have time to read books. So I figured, okay, I'll write a short one. And it's still packed with information. It was a very quick (laughs) one to write. But this one, the the story is so incredible, and it requires a lot of evidence to back up what I'm saying. So, of course, and I had no idea where the story was going. Uh, I just have an idea. Uh, Something strikes me as being odd, and I follow that uh, idea and see where it goes. Sometimes it goes nowhere. Uh, Mm. And then I just let the evidence and the facts uh, take me on a journey, uh, which is why I like working this way. And it's always a surprise to me where it ends, because I can't make this stuff up, because I can only go as far as the information that I fine so this was definitely a, a huge journey in piecing together the uh the, how, how long time did you spend on this it's hard to say because i'm always doing other projects and sometimes right. sometimes i have to put something down in order to understand something else uh, uh this is one's been going on for about eight years uh wow. it's certainly taken about th- three years just to sort of put together and uh, there was a, a bit of a joke going around that you know, every time Graham Hancock, who, you know, he, he works with also with ancient civilizations. And yeah. every time he comes out with a book, of course, all of ours look like they're dated. And I figured I've got to do something different that Graham's doing. And this is very <laughs> different to his work. But there are overlaps, of course. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to bring it out before his one came out. And I found some new information when I was in New Zealand, which, of course, I had to go into depth. And it made the uh, release date, put the release date back six months and my book comes out exactly on the same day his comes out. <laughs> There's a strange god of timing that has a bad sense of humor. Yeah, so. uh, indeed. <laughs> but this isn't your last book. You just said that the Resurrection book is, is newer. The Last Art of Resurrection was the previous book, oh, okay. which is actually very easy to write because I've already had so much of the information in my head. Yeah. Uh, ironically, from having studied the Knights Templar, which is the, the book yeah. before that, and that was also. We've had a couple of shows on the Knights Templar. When I asked you if you know Timothy Hogan, he's he's like a grandmaster of a surviving Templar lineage All right. or an alleged uh, lineage. There's so many of them, anyway. And he's a good buddy with Graham and Robert and uh, both Robert Bouval and Shock. So I thought maybe, um, especially given that you've been writing extensively on the Templars. And, you know, many of my listeners are very interested in the Templars. So I think we should maybe make a show about it. Oh, absolutely. Because e- even though it's an old book, people can still, it's nothing irrelevant there. It's not like the story went away anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no! And in fact, I'm surprised that no one actually touched the area of the Templars that I actually found. Uh, 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 there's been so many books on the Templars, but no oh. one's done a book on the origins. And I, I mean, I was born in Portugal, uh, so for me, it was a matter of looking mm. at the connection between Portugal and Templars. Right. I had no idea that this story was going to take such a huge turn. Uh, to discover why they created Portugal in the first place and why the grail is actually in Portugal. And it's not what you think it is. Uh, it wasn't what I think it is. It's something very different. So it's a, it became a very original book, and uh, I'm very proud of it, I have to yeah. say. I'm surprised that no one else touched this subject. 
this explains your last name, which <laughs> it was a minor mystery <laughs> compared to this. But l- don't push it anymore. I-, I will have you back for that at another time. Let that be a teaser. It's now, a whole project in itself. It is. The Templars is so huge, it's a can of worms. But let me go to a basic question. Who was Anu? Anu. Well, everything seems to come back to the uh, to Lord Anu. Um, exactly. It's uh, he was sort of the central figure, one of many actually, who was central to all of these gods. Everything comes back to those people because I guess so much of what little information survives uh, is focused on these people. The uh, Lord Anu was essentially uh, a leader of a group of people who essentially were connected to the sky. They were sky gods. Uh, in fact, they were actually described as the heart of the sky. And their original homeland appears to be associated with the heart of the Orion constellation. But they were physical people. They were real people. They had a, uh, um, a compound here somewhere on a very high mountain, somewhere in, uh, around the Middle East. And uh, they were surrounded by other groups of people, uh, 49 in total, seven groups of seven, And they were basically trying to uh, move uh, the stakes in the human development um, uh, story. They were slowly drip-feeding civilization to human beings, just giving them an idea that they could do better than what they were doing. And to do this, they had these go-betweens, these messengers, uh, who were called the Watchers. And Mm. these were the people who would liaise between the lords of Anu and human beings. They would say, well, wouldn't it be nice if you planted this in a certain way and you could actually domesticate crops? And then they would disappear. They would just give this suggestion to hunter-gatherers, and then they will let people develop on their own. Uh, a very good way of doing things. You let people decide for themselves. So these were people who were uh, high wisdom keepers. They certainly appear to have had complete control of the laws of nature. Uh, they understood about the mechanics of how to grow things, the stars, mathematics, uh, metals, uh, and also how to use the power of intent in order to move objects uh, to the point where they used the power of sound to move large rocks at will to construct mm. temples overnight, which is, again, another story that you hear all around the world. The temples yeah. were built with big rocks and, sound. and they filtered through the air to the power of sound. Yeah. So they definitely had control of the forces of nature uh, and they were able to, to do this in a very elegant way. Uh, what we are not uh, told, uh, because, again, we have fragments of the story, is where it all went a little bit wrong. Uh, all we know is that there was a small group of the watchers, these uh, almost like technicians, if you like. They were uh, much more uh, involved with the day-to-day things. The, a small group of them decided that they found earth women very attractive, and they decided to disobey uh, strict orders and go down to the plains and start intermarrying with women. These wasn't the gods themselves. These was the middleman, right? These, they, the watchers were still declared as gods, but uh, not at the same level that the uh, Anunnaki were declared as gods. They're almost as if they were trainee gods. <laughs> so, Could I be? Do you, do you put any stock in that they were like created uh, as a mix between humans and, and the so-called gods? That's not what that comes across in the uh, in all the accounts. There already were people of their own particular okay. kinds. Okay. Um, mm. 
And uh, I'll come to that in a second, because mm -hmm. the Lord of Anu says, you know, even I have not told everything that I know to the watchers. So it seems as though that once you develop a certain level of um, understanding, a watcher would then become part of the inner circle of the Lords of Anu. That's my interpretation of the available material. Now, the fallen watchers, the small group of people who decided to go down and teach human beings who were not very developed at that time, uh, things they shouldn't have known, not understanding how to work with these things, for example, the working of metals, warfare, and stuff like that, uh, it created some really bad bedfellows. And this is where we get to, to the point where the watchers did begin to interbreed with human women. The women died at childbirth, and they begat what can only be described as abominations. And these were the Nephilim. Now, Nephilim comes from a very old Hebrew word meaning Orion, uh, which adds another layer to this story. And the humans were not unnerved by the watchers. They were very comfortable with them and the Anunnaki, but they were very afraid of the Nephilim because they said at the beginning, they just looked like, you know, very big, uh, small influence compared to the babies that were human. Mm. Uh, but as soon as they began to outgrow the human babies, they became giants. They uh, were, uh, as first they played with the children, and then they began to eat them. Jeez. Uh, they turned on themselves. They turned to warfare. Uh, they were killed for sport. And that's where the dark side of the story takes over from the light side. This is the story that we end up hearing all the time, which is a bit sad. Uh, and this is the, one of the reasons why the lords of Anu said, you know, we are trying to bring this problem in. We, we're going to send out the other watchers, the good ones, and say, look, pick up uh, the bad watchers, put them in jail. And also we have to start reigning in the Nephilim who are out of control. Hmm. Humans cannot compete with them. And that they tried as best as they could. They tried to keep the situation under control. But it's quite clear from the available text that they were struggling to maintain law and order on the earth. And humans mm -hmm. couldn't cope with this. And that's where the lords of Anu got together and said, we're just going to have to basically uh, wipe out the earth and start from scratch. There's going to be a lot of loss of life, but humans are going to die anyway. Uh, this will become a planet of giant bastard offspring. Uh, the uh, the best we can do is at the right time, we are going to use our intent to move rocks which are flying through the middle of the sky, which of course is a torrid meteor shower. We're going to influence those rocks to hit the earth at the right places so that we'll create a global flood and everything will be washed clean and we'll start from scratch again. And you read the story in its original context and it's almost as, you can hear, you can feel the bitter sweetness of, the, of it all. They didn't want to do this. They were pushed into a situation that was beyond their control. But sadly, it's the dark side of the story that takes over and the Anunnaki get a bad name, the Watchers get a bad name, and of course the Nephilim definitely get a bad name because they were literally crazy people, but it wasn't their fault. It was a bad genetic mismatch between these elevated people and human beings. So I've tried to put that in its correct place based on the uh, available material. How elevated can they be? They are too. They are. They, they are obviously living in the bubbles. These are the ancient oligarchs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm on the side of. Uh, I'm not on their side. When I can wipe out a planet for genetic concerns, screw you. Uh, that's my message to them. And by the way, I'm happy we had sexy ladies around, because otherwise they wouldn't teach us all these things, right? We would still exactly. be 
crawling on all fours. Well, but, here's a good point also to keep in mind that uh, in these groups of those seven gods, there was one woman, and she was the wisdom keeper of them all. She was the most exalted of all of them, and also she was the carrier of the bloodline. Um, she Essentially, she was the most important person in the whole group. Is this Tiamat? Uh, no, the Tiamat is much, much later, much, much later. Oh, okay. Okay. We're talking now back to the original bloodline. Uh, Tiamat right, was right. one of that bloodline. And Mary Magdalene, of course, becomes part of that bloodline thousands of years later after that. So we're talking 11,000 years of history here. Mm. Um, yeah, but, but much of what you say dovetails with Blavatsky and the uh, stanzas of Zion. And according to her, this isn't just 10,000 years. This is hundreds of thousands of years. It's much older. I totally yeah. agree. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I've never heard a bad thing ever written about the uh, the Anunnaki. In fact, when the uh, in, in when we got to the Mesopotamia and Sumeria, they have found these metal figurines uh, called Watchers, who are uh, basically imitations of the Anu and the Watchers that were put at the corners of each building, specifically sacred buildings, in order to act as protective. Uh, amulets. So this would not have been the case if these people had been terrorists in the first place, or they'd been looked upon as pretty bad people. So I get a sense that this concept of hierarchy wasn't really a sort of hierarchy in the sense that we would consider it to be, mm -hmm. as that they were better than us. I think they were trying to basically be on par with humans, but they kept themselves separate because they obviously did have a much more developed understanding. And in fact, when you look at the Egyptian pharaohs, they tried to do the same thing. Uh, the ones that came from the bloodline of the Anu and the Shining Ones, they tried to conceal the fact that they were genetically different because they had the elongated skulls by having those ridiculous crowns Yeah. They call the crown of Upper and Lower Egypt in order to hide their physiognomy uh, as best as they could and pretend to be a normal person. And the uh, the barometer which made a good pharaoh in their reign was how much have they elevated the people around them to their status, to their level. So that to me, all of these things start to add up to uh, mm. painting a picture of the Anu and the Shining Ones and the Watchers as benevolent people who had our best interests. But events eventually forced them to into a situation where they literally had no choice. But but I'm I'm not getting it. Did the original gods, the, the Anu crowd, live on Earth too, or was it just these harbingers of the gods who lived here? They lived on Earth. They lived in, uh, as we said earlier, in seven compounds on different islands. Oh, okay. So they didn't live in Orion or wherever. Well, well, that's the big, the big story, isn't it? Yeah. How did they get about? That piece is missing. That's that, that's when we start to have to, having to listen to the mythologies of the Hopi and people like them. They mm. said that yes, they did have the ability to come backwards and forwards between to Orion, but they also had compounds here on Earth. Uh, they actually lived here, and they found it very difficult to be here. Apparently, yeah, can't blame them, huh? <laughs> well, it's just their physiognomy was so different that they they, right, uh, right. they found gravity here to be you know d difficult, and they said that um, they had to develop the appropriate bo physical bodies in order to uh, f um, ground themselves. So they were very tall. They had the elongated skull, which, as we know, uh, it, it, in order to have a brain that fits into that skull, the people with the elongated skull 
essentially have a more developed spiritual brain, which is today we, we, we're trying to understand how the brain works. You know, we as humans have a more developed frontal cortex yeah. because we rely on mental processing. The rear part of the brain is still a very mysterious part. It's the more metaphysical part. And they said that the reason why they had that uh, uh, elongated uh, rear section of the brain is because they, they needed to keep one foot in the other world, in the place mm. where they came from. And suddenly it makes a lot of sense if you read it from that point of view. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very Tai Chi and Aikido of them to change themselves, to adjust to Earth instead of terraforming Earth. Exactly. Or, or did they terraform? I mean, we did have uh, dino- the dinosaur climate was completely different. Absolutely. So they could have done stuff to Earth too if they if they were able to wipe clean and reboot uh, people here. They could have done something originally too, but it's so far back that we probably don't have records about that no and i don't find, i haven't found anything that suggests that they could do that kind of thing all i have found is that they had a power of intent mm. in order to influence uh, a result and we have that power as well that's the whole point of the, ah, right, uh, the right. of the book that i was writing which is to do with the fact that they left us for eleven thousand years to discover our own god-given ability that we also have the same power and if we look at the Um, projects that have been done with transcendental meditation to influence the crime rate in America uh, with incredible results. We also have had people in a laboratory, 20 people have been able to alter the uh, computerized drumbeat of a machine. So if you and I, 20 people can sit in a room and alter a machine, think about what we can do with the power of intent to say, move an object or prevent an object from hitting the earth. Exactly. You see my point? Yeah, absolutely. I think the lesson is right there. The lesson is right in front of us. It's very important. Yeah, I, I get where you what you're getting at in your book too. I think people should read it to get properly initiated into that aspect and, and convinced. But yeah, I will back you. There is uh, research, heavy duty research that shows that we can alter the brain with meditation. Exactly. Obviously, we we also have physics. Uh, research like the Princeton eggs and all that so so yeah there is and, and that's the missing component that is now getting its due slowly gradually that consciousness is huge in this field uh, Rupert Sheldrake and many other biologists so so I'm with you it's not just like airy fairy I mean it's hard science I nearly had lunch with Rupert Sheldrake a week ago actually just miss each other Nice, nice. <laughs> He's too old school for my show, unfortunately, because oh, he doesn't no. he doesn't do Skype. But uh, he's been on a lot with uh, my friend uh, Alex Sakiris of Skeptico, and he's he's covered a lot of scientific research into consciousness. And that's I think that's the new frontier. It's just exactly. right. So the lid is open, and it's just flushing out. <laughs> but I, I tell you, Freddie, it's it's interesting to watch, uh, observe these wisdom keepers. Uh, they survived so much. They survived uh, the downfall of civilization, and and yet somehow from they were even there in the reboot. But now today, there's no one around, or are they? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are plenty of people around. Um, they keep a low profile. I think if you look at the last 2,000 years of what we've gone through, particularly in the West yeah. uh, with modern religion, I think people have learned to survive, to tell a tale to another day and just don't make too much of um, uh, don't make too much of yourself so that you don't get the spears thrown at you. Um, right. I, I mean, for example, using myself as an example, um, I... People ask me, where, where do you go and uh, do most of your talks? I mean, what's one of your biggest audiences? And I'll say, Ohio. 
And people say, but that's a very conservative part of America. I said, yes, it is. But you know what? I get called up and, uh, and one day and people say, well, can you come and speak at this town? And I have to look at it on Google Earth. I have no idea where this place is. Uh, they don't even have a restaurant. And uh, I'll say, well, you know, if you can get X number of people in a room and uh, this is how much I would need to make a living. And um, if I come back in the black, I'll go there. And hundreds of people come out of the woods and they'll fill that room. Uh, and it tells me there's a lot more people going around quietly doing this work without attracting attention. Because by the time the uh, powers that be recognize how much of a spiritual change is going on in the, in the planet, it's too late. Too many people are already mm. in on the, on the joke, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, there are many people do it quietly, uh, changing the world through different ideas. Uh, even just on Facebook, you see people coming up with incredible in inventions. Uh, mm. You know, machines that eat plastic from the ocean, for example, or pull water out of thin air in the desert. Beautiful mm. things. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of positivity going on, and I, f I, I feel very positive about this time of tumultuous change that we find ourselves in, that uh, the Indians are saying is the uh, change of one cycle to the next. Uh, we're faced with, uh, you know, with near mass extinction. Uh, we're also, you know, um, by August uh, the 12th, we have already consumed more than the planet is able to, uh, to create. So, and that date goes back six days each year. So about a decade from now, we'll probably be somewhere in the middle of June, and we've already consumed all renewables on Earth. That's scary. Yeah. And we, get it, we have more people being born all the time. And uh, it, this is quite a scary scenario. But within that, we already had the seeds of another understanding. And I, I, I travel in so many places around the world. You know, I've been to Norway. I've been to uh, places that you never even heard of. Hmm. And I've, I'm always amazed at how many people are providing so much information uh, based on these ancient teachings and how they take the information and they keep reiterating and repromulgating the information quietly going about the work not attracting attention so i'm actually quite uh, i feel very positive about all of this yeah but that's us reaching back to the source i'm thinking more of these people who inherited it but uh, i'm with you there's still mystery schools around that you can't join by uh, you know an uh, internet ad exactly so uh, and you have uh, retrieved lots of people it seems from here and there uh, in different oh God, yeah. traditions you know, what, you know al there's really nothing new it's this is all the same information dressed yeah. up in a new way for example you go watch star wars it's nothing really different than the retelling of the story of Isis and Osiris, mm. uh, and just as Jason and the Argonauts with the same story as, Ar as Arthur and the Grail, yeah. just redone for a different audience with a different taste. So we're not really in inventing anything new. We're just basically regurgitating what was already done package for a, a modern audience which is absolutely acceptable uh, because obviously when you're talking about uh, the language that they were using in ancient Egypt it's going to be a bit hard to convince people to go on a personal journey of introspection uh, using the language that they use they'll look at you and think you've gone mad <laughs> yeah so your website again uh, yeah oh yes uh, invisibletemple.com and there they can buy all your books too, right? Oh, DVDs and uh, there are articles and uh, you'll be there for weeks. Yeah, okay. And, and by the way, your research, that relies on writings, myths and geology and all kinds of sources, right? Oh, God, I've got about 15 different types of income. It all comes in little bits these days. Yeah, but I mean, I mean the so when you do research, you're relying on a multi-approach 
to get to your conclusions, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's, Science, tradition, everything. It comes from it comes from both sides of the equation, from metaphysics and from physics. Uh, I like mm. I like the match of the two, and especially when the two overlap nicely. One yeah. is essentially saying the same thing in a different language, and it allows the story to develop organically rather than me saying this is my opinion. Well, we have too many opinions in the world, in my opinion. We don't need another one. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I agree. No, but when there is mutual. Uh, corroboration that's that's validation like you said about you and graham's work too it's it's kind of how it works if you if we stumble upon truth no matter which angle we approach it from then we should take away something similar in essence if not in expression so i'm totally agree with you i know you have to run so i'll just thank you for your uh, gracious time well thank you for your time i'll appreciate it and uh thank you for everybody in norway uh Love the people. I've always had a great experience with people there. Yeah, that's great. But 50% of the listeners are American. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> and by the way, I thought you lived in Portland, but you live in Maine. That's, yes. that's cheating. Maine is almost like Scandinavia. <laughs> Actually, I was in uh, Oslo and uh, at the summer, I think it was in June a few years ago, and I got up in the middle of the night with jet lag, and I looked out and I thought, I swear I'd got on a plane and I left Maine because <laughs> it's the same buildings, the same color, the same vegetation, the same geology. Yeah. And in a matter of speaking, the same people. We have a lot of Nordic people here as well. I know. And the culture. But you haven't been in Norway if you've been in Oslo. That's like a mini Sweden. Uh, you have to go to the west, to Bergen and the west. I, I've been up north. Where was oh, I? I was yeah. at a conference way up north, and I can't remember the name of the town. Beautiful place. Tromsø. They had one of the original um, churches of Olav. Oh, Trondheim. Yes, Trondheim. Yeah. Well, that's a cozy city, but Bergen is like 10 times Trondheim. So so go (laughs) next time, come to the west, okay? Well, if someone wants to invite me, I'm more than happy to fly over. There you get it, people. You heard him. It's up to you. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Freddy. And Denmark as well. (laughs) Pardon? And Denmark as well. And uh, yeah, lovely place, lovely people. Too flat for my. Um, it's good to drive through. <laughs> oh, uh, you're biased. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Legoland. So yeah, no, no, Denmark, Danish people. Kudos to you. Hey, seriously, I want you back later. Sure. Because uh, for each show we do on each book, especially when there's subjects we have touched already, we have a huge follow. Like Timothy Hogan, he got seventy thousand people uh, have listened to our show with him on the temple. And I think you oh, can do very good. Yes. So I think we should do something on the Templars at some point. I'd love to. Yeah. It's a very original piece of work. I, I, like I said, I can't believe no one had touched that um, area of research about the origins. And it was completely uh, mind blowing. Exactly. And it's, I guess, sacred geometry is, is an approach here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll do one next month. Yeah, cool. July is perfect. I'm July and August totally open. I'll, I'll drop you a mail and, and we'll get back to it. We'll go from there. But uh, run along now. I know you, you're pressed for time, but thank you very much for, for contributing to this episode. Thanks, Val. Appreciate it. I'm, I've just got back from Europe. I've got a million things I have to get on, I've got to do. Yeah, we'll wrap this up. Lovely, Al. Okay, thank you a lot, Freddy. See you later. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I'll talk to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And again, we thank Mr. Silva for joining us and sharing off his immense insights. Now, if you enjoy this show, remember to support us, as I've been 
whining about uh, so many times. We are really under the knife from YouTube. And uh, the only way to fight back for independent media is for our listeners to step up. So remember the different ways you can support us. There's no excuse. Everybody can do something. Obviously, first of all, it's the financial element. You can donate and that covers our basics. Beyond that, you can share our shows. That's actually probably the second most important thing you can do. Share them. Influence the corrupt and rigged algorithm. uh, Because it will pick that up and spread the show. So it doesn't matter in which social media you do share. It doesn't even matter if it has no interaction like likes, further shares, comments. Of course, that boosts the share value. But even if that doesn't even happen, as long as you just share it and nobody cares about it, it still influences the algorithm. So that's that's one cheap way to to support us. Further, you can let the ads at YouTube be played out. Uh, that goes back to the financial element again, especially if you're not a donor. You, you should consider that. If you value the energy we put into the shows, that's a little crumble back to us. And you can even help us get on big guests like, well, I should probably not name anyone, but let me name Richard Dolan. I've had him on before, but he's impossible to get hold of. I'm guessing some of our audience overlap with him. So if you bitch to him about, hey, won't you get back, won't you go back on forum soon? You know, those things influences a potential guest. I don't even know if Dolan still gives interviews like that. But if there's anyone you want us to talk with who is established, meaning he's already somewhat famous and popular as a guest, it can be hard. We get many rejections, actually. And that's mainly, I think, to do with they have no idea who we are or what what to expect. Because those who do know who we are, come on. <laughs> but, you know, guests don't have time. They're not like podcast junkies like you and I. They do their research, and many of them are still enthralled by the old stream media, the legacy media. They think that's where it's at. That's so hopeless. Uh, they they don't realize that they get much more listeners by coming on podcasts. I mean, some do, many do, but but not all, and especially the older ones. So that's a way also to put us on the map is to... N- mention us, talk about us in forums, in websites, whatever. So that's that. Now, in a previous show in this series, the one with Robert Schock on the demise of the Ice Age civilization, I told you that I'm going to read of Plato's accounts, and I will in future shows. But today, I will read an account of Plutarch, who tells us more about Plato's source. Because As you probably know, Plato lived 400 BC. His ancestor Solon, the great lawgiver of Athens, lived approximately 200 years before that. Now Solon visited Egypt, as did a few other Greeks. Not many were were accepted to be admitted and initiated into the mysteries. Plato was one, Pythagoras another, and the historian Herodot even. But about Solon's visit to Egypt, Plutarch says, Solon attempted in verse a large description, or rather fabulous account, 
of the Atlantic island, which he had learned from the wise men of Sais, and which particularly concerned the Athenians, but by reason of his age, not want of leisure, as Plato would have it, he was apprehensive the work would be too much for him, and therefore did not go through with it. Plato, ambitious to cultivate and adorn the subject of the Atlantic island as a delightful spot in some fair field unoccupied, to which also he had some claim by reason of his being related to Solon, laid out magnificent courts and enclosures and erected a grand entrance to it, such as no other story, fable or poem ever had. But as he began it late, he ended his life before the work, so that the more the reader is delighted with the part that is written, the more regret he has to find it unfinished. Solon visited Egypt, where the priesthood taught him about Atlantis, as they did with both Plato and his mentor and initiator Pythagoras. Plutarch goes on to say, There be conversed upon points of philosophy and history, with the most learned of the Egyptian priests. He was a man of extraordinary force and penetration of mind, as his laws and his sayings, which have been preserved to us, testify. There is no improbability in the statement that he commenced in verse a history and description of Atlantis, which he left unfinished at his death. And it requires no great stretch of the imagination to believe that this manuscript reached the hands of his successor and descendant Plato, a scholar, thinker and historian like himself, and, like himself, one of the profoundest minds of the ancient world. The Egyptian priests had said to Solon, you have no antiquity of history and no history of antiquity. And Solon doubtless realized fully the vast importance of a record which carried human history back, not only thousands of years before the era of Greek civilization, but many thousands of years before even the establishment of the kingdom of Egypt. And he was anxious to preserve for his half-civilized countrymen this inestimable record of the past. It's such a pity that the library of Alexandria was crushed, destroyed, dismantled, burned. The same can be said for the mystery schools like that of Hypatia, Hypatia, however you pronounce it in English, and the Platonic academies, etc. Because these centers of enlightenment had so many records akin to Tibetan temples and monasteries, And there's no telling how much has perished in the dustbin of history during these raids of the ignorance. How many scrolls and pergaments with great detailed descriptions of the prehistoric civilization is lost to us today. But step by step, we're detecting the crumbles, trying to reconnect with our ancient original source very terrestrial still out of this world that's it for today thanks for tuning in as ever I'm your host Al thanks to your support and the hard work of my team be seeing you
who is number one?